And I was remiss in not reminding us that all the children are dismissed from age three to year three. Um, I think they already left. They know I forget sometimes, so they're, they're already upstairs. But I'm glad that they can worship and learn together at an age-appropriate level for them. It was encouraging this week to have uh, our two boys, and I'm sure several of you who have children of those ages, uh, our boys were practicing their memory verse this week from the Gospel of John, and it's wonderful to have our young people hiding God's word in their heart, even as we should be doing as adults. We want to consider what it means to be a partaker or a partner in the Gospel. Paul uses that language in Philippians chapter 1 in the verses just read for us. And we want to consider what he has to tell us about that. We have in these verses the Apostle's prayer for the Philippian Christians. Those that he had pastored beyond the church as a church planter. He had pastored for a time he deeply loves and is thankful for as we saw last week. And he prays for them. Now Paul's prayers, for what it's worth, are always worthy of your consideration. They're worth, in fact, sort of pulling out and and putting side by side and really considering and meditating upon them. They're always characterized by a few things. One, intelligence, and two, consideration. His prayers are ordered and they're intimately aware of and concerned for the people for whom he's praying and their condition. Or to say it a different way, he prays with both his mind and his heart. And Paul wants the Philippian Christians, as he prays for them, to be partakers of the gospel or partners in the gospel with him. But what exactly does that mean, to be a partaker or a partner in the gospel that he says in verse 7? Well, to that question, Paul gives us four answers. Four answers that are found in verses 7 to 11 of what it means to be a partaker in the gospel. The first is that we should experience, if we are a Christian, we should experience and partner in the grace and favor of God. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. He's speaking about his thankfulness and his gratefulness for them. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains, which he was currently in jail in chains, or whether he's defending and confirming the gospel, continuing to preach, all of you share in God's grace with me. The term translated share in this passage at the end of verse 7 is the term uh, from which we get partake or partner, different translations have. So how, how exactly is Paul talking about this partnering, this sharing, this partnering in God or in the gospel? Well, he begins by saying he wants them to partner or share in the grace and favor of God. Now, notice that the Philippian Christians, they had supported Paul. They had supported him when he was their pastor, but they continued to support him, knowing that what he was doing was God's calling on his life, and so they supported him faithfully, even now that he's in jail, and from our perspective, it would seem that his ministry has come to an end, at least for a time. I mean, after all, what ministry can you do in jail? And yet, we find that they continue to support him even as he's in chains. Now, we know 
from the book of Acts, his ministry did not diminish while he was in jail. In fact, he was constantly preaching the gospel. People were visiting him in jail, and he also had several uh, golden opportunities of those Roman guards who were guarding him. They were a captive audience, and so it seems that he was preaching to them and constantly sharing the gospel with them, so much so that God used it, and many of them came to Christ as well. But the Philippian Christians know something that's very important. Even in the down times, they're willing to support Paul and the ministry God has called him to because they know that the ministry goes on through the ups and downs of gospel work. Now, what does Paul tell us about Christians here? As he tells us to experience and partner in the grace and favor of God, that was part of his hope for and his recognition of what was happening with the Philippian Christians. What, what does all this tell us about the life of a Christian? Well, it tells us that God surveying the whole world from heaven, so to speak, seeing all the teeming masses of humanity in sin, growing up in sin, a world filled with sin, he has a special eye, or he gives special favor and consideration to Christians. They are uniquely his children in a special way. He has a relationship with them, and so he sees them differently. He, he's concerned with them differently. That's what it means to have God's grace and favor on an individual. It's similar to what Paul began with in his introductory verses in verse 2, for instance, when he says, grace and peace to you, the Christians there at Philippi. Paul's prayer is that they may comprehend more fully the nature of the relationship of peace which God has established with them through the person and work of Christ. We're told in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 14, something wonderful. It says, God exercises special knowledge or action toward those who are his own. If you are a Christian, God knows you in a unique way, a way differently than he knows non-Christians. Now, of course, God is all-knowing. He knows all about us. He knows every thought in our head. He knows every intention of our heart for all of humanity, past, present, and future. But he gives a unique or a special knowledge, we should say, or a special action of favor and grace and consideration towards those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. As Romans 8.31 tells us, if God is for us, who can be against us? And of course, the answer to that rhetorical question is no one, at least no one of any consequence or with any real power can be against us if we have the almighty God on our side. We're also told in the Psalms that he considers the paths of the righteous. He considers where you go and what you do. He considers the trajectory of your life. He gives unique time and consideration, we might say it if we're trying to put it in our own terms, to his Christian children. To have the grace and favor of God on your life is no small thing, and it is part of what is meant by partaking in the gospel. But why is it, if we pause for a moment and we ask this question, why is it that many of us don't feel like we're experiencing in our day-to-day -day life the grace and favor of God on our life? Why don't we have that experience? Why don't we have that assurance through our experience? Well, likely it's because we've failed to meet the conditions. If we fail to receive the outcome, then it's likely we've failed to meet the conditions. Many Christians, for instance, say that they would be willing to die for Christ. And that's a, that's a good thing. It's an appropriate thing. And perhaps the Lord will call you to that one day. But the great need of the hour for us in this country at this time is not for you to die for Christ. It's for, you, it's for you to live for Christ. That's far harder in many ways 
to choose to live day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, according to God's principles, by his spirit, walking in step with him. But if we refuse to follow what he says and the conditions he gives in his word, then we shouldn't be surprised when our lives are not marked by things that we looked at last week, holiness. When we don't feel at all like a saint of God, someone who is saintly or holy or set apart to God in his work, when we don't seem to experience the grace and favor of God in our life consistently. But if we follow the conditions of what he says, then we will inevitably experience the fruit because the fruit comes from his spirit who is all-powerful. Not only is a Christian supposed to experience the grace and favor of God, but also they should experience and cultivate the affections and love of Jesus Christ for one another. Verses 8 and 9. Let's read that again together. He says, God can testify. Paul speaking here to the Philippian Christians. God can testify how I long for you all. For the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth and insight. Now that word affections is a really interesting one. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian and philosopher of North America, wrote a wonderful book called Religious Affections, about the, the Christian affections, and affections being defined here as a sort of older English word we don't use all that much, meaning a gentle feeling of fondness or of liking for something. God has affection for us as his children, a fondness for us because he has redeemed us with his own blood. He likes us. Yes, he loves us, that's true, but he really likes us, not because we're great in and of ourselves, but because of how we have been redeemed and we are individuals created in his image. And we too, in response, are to have proper religious affections for God, first and foremost, thankfulness, gratefulness, gratitude for what he has done for us, and also proper affections, primarily love, for our fellow Christians. But Paul says he wants this love to abound, these affections to abound, how? In knowledge and insight, verse 8. So he doesn't just want mere sentimentality between Christians. That's not what we're going for. He, he couples it with this knowledge and insight. It's not just growth in love in some abstract or subjective way. That's what our culture around us currently highlights and suggests for us. The claim of love has now become the most sacred claim in all society, it seems. If you claim to love someone or something, then no one can question it. No one can question whether you truly love that thing. No one can say, hang on a second, that, that love doesn't seem to be genuine. That love seems to be harmful. Maybe it's not actually love we're talking about. You cannot say that or else you will be attacked. But this form of love is nothing more than something similar to a child saying, I want what I want because I want it. It's a selfishness oftentimes, a deep, intense selfishness. True love is not primarily focused on myself. It's focused on others. It's for the benefit of others. If you love someone, you will do what is good for them, even if it is hard for you. It's an others-focused mentality. And the love of which Paul is speaking is not merely feelings or experience towards another individual. It's choosing to do what is right for that other individual, even if it's hard for yourself. But it's also not just intellectual interest or proper theology. Understanding, I know I should love my brother or sister in Christ, and so mentally speaking, 
yes, I put my brother or sister in Christ in the category of those that I should love. Paul is not speaking merely intellectually, nor is he speaking merely sentimentally. He is speaking of an applied spiritual knowledge that is fueled by love. And it's absolutely essential, Paul understands, for us to get the balance right. The primary fundamental word for Paul when it comes to this insightful knowledge is love. He speaks about it in 1 Corinthians 13, for instance. A whole chapter on love, what it is and what it is not. Where there is no love, Paul tells us, there is no life. And there must be life before you can impart knowledge and discernment in Christ. Paul is concerned about the type of knowledge that is not based on love. And in the same way, he is afraid of a love that cannot be controlled by proper knowledge and checked by godly discernment. Now, all of this, likely for you, as it, for me, uh, seems a bit ethereal. Uh, interesting ideas, but are these just ideas out there in the ether, or do they, they really matter? They really matter in the practice. Here's how. If you merely have, or primarily have, only biblical knowledge, you, you understand passages of Scripture, and you understand the principles that come from them, and, and that's all good, but if that's really the totality of what you have without love, the proper way to apply it in a loving manner, then that leads to legalism. Lists of rules of what you can and can't do, and you have to conform to a particular picture of what it's like to follow Christ. And if you don't, you're not godly and you don't care about God, or that sort of an idea. Legalism leads to all sorts of judgmentalism. But on the other hand, if you have zeal, that is a passion, a love for God, but it's not coupled with knowledge, true biblical understanding, it leads to licentiousness, to license, to I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do, and it doesn't matter what God's word says or what the parameters he gives or how he commands me to act as a Christian because I love God, and so everything is just love and grace and wonderful fuzzy feelings. You see, there's an imbalance on either side, and Paul doesn't want legalism, and he doesn't want license, because neither of those are godly, and so he says, you have to have a coupling of the true spiritual discernment used in a godly fashion with love. And he goes on, and he tells us more about this in verse 10, where he says that we should experience and grow in applied spiritual discernment. Look at verse 10. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and, and blameless for the day of Christ. That is, you can continue to grow in maturity as you grow in spiritual discernment. Christian maturity, spiritual discernment, and growth in that area, those are synonyms. The people who are most frequently thrown off balance in their Christian lives are those who are most lacking in the applied Christian knowledge of biblical discernment. Now, knowledge is very different than wisdom and discernment. Follow me here. This is vitally important for us to understand because so many Christians get this wrong and, that, and therefore they become uh, grossly imbalanced and that leads to a lack of fruitfulness in their life as we're about to find out. Many people think that maturity in Christ comes from, or at least partially comes from, merely learning more facts about God from his word. By all means, we are commanded to know his word, to study it. But we are told to study it, places like Psalm 1, for the purpose of obeying it, not just for the purpose of accumulating knowledge. 
Knowledge is different than wisdom and discernment. We could define wisdom or spiritual discernment as the ability to apply the knowledge of God's word to everyday life. That is a very different thing entirely from mere knowledge. And there are plenty of men and women who are considered intelligent, knowledgeable, skilled in a particular subject, but they're of little use when it comes to real life problems. Because although they can wax eloquent on their little pet topic that they know everything about, they have no idea how to apply the truth that they know to everyday life. We all know these sorts of individuals. We all at times are these sorts of individuals where we have missed that key step of applying the principles and the truth we know to everyday life. One of the greatest needs for the individual Christian today is the need of spiritual discernment. It's grossly lacking in the church, the world around. This spirit of biblical discrimination to know the difference not between what's right and wrong. That's the, that's the very basic level of d- Christian discernment. And that's important up to a point. But real Christian discernment, real growth and maturity in Christian discernment is knowing the difference between what is right and true and what is almost right or almost true. Because all you need is just a tiny bit of poison to throw everything off, right? All you need is that little cyanide. If, Sorry, I know that's a, a weird illustration, isn't it? I'm thinking of arsenic and old lace, like the... the play? No one's seen this. Okay. All right. Um, this, is, this is important, though. Let me use a different illustration, since apparently nobody has seen that play. Go watch that, by the way. In rat poison, if you have rat problem or a mice problem, and you get rat poison or poison for the mice, all, the, all that food that you give them, the little rat pellets or whatever it is, it's 99.95% wholesome food that is good for the rat or the mouse. There's only 0.05% of poison, but that 0.05% is enough to kill them. All it takes is a little falsehood, a little twisting of the truth for us to go astray. And Paul prays for the Christians there that they would have this spiritual discernment being developed among themselves so that they will be able to notice what is true and distinguish that from what's almost true because false teachers were going around in the churches and they were saying a lot of really good true biblical stuff quoting scripture but they were twisting it and they were adding in some false elements one of the greatest needs of the christian today is developing this spiritual maturity this spiritual discernment it's very difficult though to describe this quality adequately perhaps even as you've been listening you've been thinking well what exactly is it and how exactly do I get it could you be more definitive more clear but it's a challenge because it's spiritual discernment is almost something intellectual that is it does require us to apply our minds but it's also almost something instinctive That is, once you've come to kind of begin to learn it and grow in maturity in this area, it's second nature. It should become more second nature. It's both knowing how to properly apply biblical truths and then choosing to do so in everyday situations. Do you know how to do that? Paul is concerned that the Christians know the great eternal decrees of God and how to discerningly apply them in their own lives. Do you know how to do that? Or is there... Is there a bit of a disconnect from essentially what we do on Sunday morning, what we do in Bible study 
ourselves, what we do in our grace groups? Is there a disconnect between that and your everyday life? You don't know how to span the gap, so to speak. Paul is concerned that they are able to bridge that gap. How desperately we need this characteristic as Christians today and how appropriate it was for Paul to pray for the Philippian Christians that they had this. There are so many cults and fallacies today, so many professing Christians who are teaching unbelievable nonsense that does not line up with God's word. The church desperately needs this discernment. These fallacies and these half-truths have proliferated. They've always been with us throughout church history, but they proliferate in an environment where Christians don't know the word of God clearly enough and are not applying it consistently enough in their own lives, where they have not developed this spiritual discernment. And all, all too often, and sadly we see this in our own society, these groups that do this are on the rise. They're growing by leaps and bounds. And how are they growing primarily? By going to and purposely targeting Christians in gospel-believing, gospel-preaching churches who have not developed discernment, and then they tell them a lot of good stuff mixed with some falsehood, some lies, some deceit, some twisting of the truth, and they take them out of that church and they start teaching them their false doctrine. Paul also tells us here to have a sense of what is vital. The sense of what is most important in the Christian life. The difficulty in life is knowing what we ought to concentrate our time on, isn't it? That's one of the greatest needs of the hour. We only have limited time, attention, and energy. So we need a godly discernment and wisdom to know where we should spend our time, which bleeds into the fourth element of partnering or being partakers of the gospel, becoming holy and fruitfully prepared for Jesus' return. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, so that you may be able to discern what is best, that's the vital part, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He prays that they would become holy, and fruitfully prepared for the return of Christ, or for whenever they go to meet Christ at their death. One of the marks of a maturing Christian is someone who stops asking questions like this. These are common questions, by the way. Common questions for new believers or for immature believers, however long they've been a believer, to ask questions like this. How close can I get to the edge? How close can I get to that sin uh, before it becomes a problem? Or is this allowable for me to do as a Christian? And one of the marks of growing discernment and maturity in a Christian's life is when they stop asking those questions and start asking the far better question indicated in verses like verse 10, what is best for me to do as a Christian? What is most appropriate? What is the vital thing? What is the most godly thing I can do in this instance? How can I extol the cause of Christ through what I do in this instance? Do you have a sense of what is vital in your life? What is truly vital in a gospel sense in your life and godliness? Can you discriminate between what is worthwhile and what is worthless? Isn't that what we need just on a general level in our society? You go to the supermarket, 27 different varieties of barbecue sauce, 100 varieties of cereal. It's ridiculous the amount of choice we have. It's one of the privileges and you could almost say one of the curses of the modern first world country. We have so many choices. We get sort of frozen or paralyzed because of choice overload. And Paul says one of the most important things you can learn and develop as a Christian, 
not just for walking down the cereal aisle, that would be a small thing, with very few ramifications for your real life. But in everyday life, and the most important decisions of life, one of the most important things for us to know how to do as a Christian is to know the difference between what is worthwhile and what is worthless. Where do I spend the majority of my discretionary time? How do I act as a Christian? What is really vital and what can go to the side? As C.S. Lewis says in his Screwtape Letters, the demons are talking in this fictitious book and they're going back and forth and they say the real goal is to get a man to the end of his life, a man or woman, to get to the end of their life and to realize because they gave into temptation, because they had no spiritual discernment, because they didn't follow the ways of God, they get to the end of their life and they look back on all that they did and they say, hmm, I didn't do really anything that I wanted to do or that was necessary. I just spent my time frivolously squandering it away on these passing fads and all sorts of things that would come to my attention and I missed out on the ultimate thing that I should have been spending my life doing because of all the distraction. What Paul's talking about here is the lost art of living well. But in order to recover this lost art of living well as a Christian, we must have a spiritual discernment to know what is vital and how to leave out the rest so we can give our attention to what is vital. It is what Paul will continue to speak about in chapter 3 when he says his goal is to know him, God, and the power of his resurrection, as he says elsewhere, and to live for him. This gospel must stay at the center. When this is practiced, it inevitably produces spiritual fruit, he says in verse 11. This spiritual fruit, what is that spiritual fruit that he's talking about? He's, he's not talking merely about uh, what he speaks about elsewhere when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, goodness, gentleness, kind. All, all that's true. That is fruit of the Spirit. But oftentimes what we think of when we hear lists like that are I should feel certain ways. I should have love. I should have gentleness. I should have kindness. I should feel in these ways. But that's not primarily what spiritual fruit is. Those terms used back then were not first and foremost feelings that you had inside. They were ways of acting. Yes, they often had a feeling accompanying it, but it, the emphasis was on the action. That's where the emphasis is here. He says he wants them to produce spiritual fruit. What is that spiritual fruit, Paul? It consists in right conduct, right living. That's the righteousness he talks about here. Do you wish to have a spiritual fruit in your life that continues and is consistent? then you must pray for spiritual discernment and a heart of love to apply it properly. This is right conduct. Spiritual fruit is right conduct coming from a right heart motivation towards God. Do you have that godly fruitfulness that results in glory being given to God as Paul prays in verse 11? Do you see how we can consider all this backwards? Let's, let's pull back and consider this in reverse. If you're a Christian but you lack consistent fruitfulness. And what we mean by that is right conduct, godly conduct, how to live out your Christianity. If, if you're lacking in that area, that means you're lacking in spiritual fruitfulness. Well, then why is that? It's because you lack spiritual discernment to know what is vitally important in the Christian life, and you lack a godly love for other Christians as well to actually act on what is most important. 
That's why Paul prays this for the Christians there at Philippi. Because he's not merely praying that they might have a greater love in their heart that doesn't affect anyone else. He's not merely praying that they understand more theology, as important as that is. He wants and he desperately desires for them that they will be living out in practical ways each and every day with all the people around them the gospel implications that they have already received in Christ. It can't stop with merely receiving the gospel but not affecting the rest of your life. And so he is desirous for them to grow in this spiritual discernment. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, that's the spiritual fruitfulness, and glorify your Father in heaven. It's the exact same thing that Paul is saying here in verse 11. And the way to live that full, abounding life, to be the light of the world that God wanted us to be, to produce the fruits of righteousness he wants us to produce, to live in right conduct, is to make certain that our love abounds and flourishes in knowledge, first and foremost to God, and then towards other Christians through spiritual understanding or discernment. And how do you develop that spiritual understanding or discernment? Because many of us here today might be saying, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of low on that. I don't think I've grown in that area the way I should. How do I develop it? A great question to ask. It's by reading God's word, by studying it, meditating on it, praying over it for the purpose of obeying it, of applying it. Applying the truth of your soul and life and God and all that's contained in his word, applying it to real life. By grasping true Christian doctrine and reading it not just in an intellectual manner, but by reading it on your knees before God with the desire to produce the fruits of righteousness that only his spirit can provide to the praise and glory of God. That, that's what we're going for. So let me ask it this way. Fathers, are you developing spiritual discernment in your life? Are you on your knees before God with an open Bible as you read it, as you meditate on it, as you pray to God, interceding for your wife, for your children, for your grandchildren if you have them? That's what we're talking about. And not only doing that, but as you meditate on it, being thinking about the fact, how can I use this passage I just read today and teach my son or my daughter something? How can I encourage my wife with what this says? How can I apply it in my life? How can I live it out today? Christian wives and mothers, what about you? Are you on your knees before God with an open Bible saying, God, teach me today. Show me how I can respond and interact with my husband in a godly manner. Show me how I can continue to try to instill gospel truths in my children and teach them each and every day in every life situation as I'm driving them to school, as I'm doing those school drop-offs, as we're going to the shops, whatever it is. How can I apply these truths in my life? How can I show them that we are going to live a different way? according to godly principles. Individual Christian, how does the gospel apply to your workplace? Have you considered that? Have you been on your knees before God in prayerful consideration of his word and saying, okay, how can I live this out today on my commute? How can I live this today in my chats with my fellow workers, whether it be online, from home, or in person as we grab a coffee? How can I live that out? 
How can I live that out as I go to the shopping center, as I do the normal daily things that I'm supposed to do? How can I live these truths out? How can the gospel influence and the gospel be a grid that influences my heart, my actions out of love and concern, first for God and then for other Christians? Are these things true of you, O Christian? Are they true of our church? Are we experiencing the grace and favor of God? Are we abounding in love toward one another? Are we growing in applied biblical knowledge and discernment, which leads to an outgrowth of wisdom or wise action? And are we keeping our mind and hearts on the most important thing, the vital thing, and subsequently producing lasting and spiritual fruit as a result? You see, this was Paul's prayer for the Christians there at Philippi. It was his goal for Christians. It's it's a great goal for us as well. It's something to be emulated both as a prayer and as the outcome. And it should be our goal. Let us pray and ask God to make these things a reality among us. To grow in spiritual maturity in a way that's pleasing to him so that we may produce his fruits. Right conduct with a right heart toward God. A love for our fellow Christian with all the glory going to God alone. Let's pray, using Paul's model as a prayer for us. Father, we thank you that because of Christ, if we have been saved by him and redeemed by him, our sins have been forgiven, that you have called us then to be partners or partakers in the gospel. You have a job for us. And we thank you that you supply all the tools we need and the power of your spirit to accomplish that task. We pray that we would experience the grace and favor of God. But we acknowledge we often do not experience that, at least certainly not as we should, because we have unconfessed sin in our life, because we allow ourselves to be distracted, we ask your forgiveness. May we experience that grace and favor again today. And Father, we also confess that we often don't have the affection, the love we should for you first, and the affections and love we should have for our fellow Christians. We also confess that and ask your forgiveness. And we pray that you will grow a much greater love in our hearts and help us to apply it rightly. And Lord, we also acknowledge we are not as spiritually discerning as we ought to be. We all desperately need to grow in this area, especially in the midst of a society where fallacies and falsehoods, lies and deceit are so prevalent, and so many different groups are trying to knock people off course spiritually. And they're even consciously and purposely going after church-attending Christians to do so. We know if we don't have this spiritual discernment to know what's right from what's almost right, we will quickly be pulled astray. It's just a little bit of poison that can lead to spiritual death and decay. So we pray that you will keep us from that spiritual poison, that you will develop in us a greater knowledge coupled with love, which will show itself in wise and discerning conduct so that we can produce the fruits of the Spirit to live the gospel in our lives to the praise and glory of Christ alone. We ask all of these things in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Please stand as we sing our last song. Oh.